0: Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our big island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97-B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken.
1: Aloha, welcome to Island Conversations. We're here on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii every Sunday at 6.30 a.m. on KWXX and at 7 a.m. on B97, B93. And the interviews rebroadcast the following Friday on KPUA 670 a.m. in Hilo. And they're always posted as podcasts at kwxx.com and b97hawaii.com. Just click on the podcast link, or you may find Island Conversations as a podcast wherever you get podcasts. Today, we are looking back in time. June 5th, 1989. That was the day after Chinese troops suppressed protesters in Tiananmen Square in Beijing by using extreme force. And on June 5th, A photojournalist named Jeff Widener managed to get an iconic photograph called Tank Man of a lone Chinese protester standing in front of a line of tanks in Tiananmen Square. That photograph has been called one of the 100 most influential photographs of all time. Photojournalist Jeff Widener was here on the Big Island in 2015, taking photographs for a book that he's still working on about hidden Hawaii. And thanks to Kirk Short, who at the time was president of the Kona Camera Club, which is still very much in existence, I was able to talk with Jeff and get the heart-stopping story of how he got that photograph. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and I still do. Good morning. Aloha, Jeff. Good morning. Thank you for spending time with me.
2: Sure, my pleasure.
1: Jeff, before we talk about your work, what are you doing here on Hawaii Island?
2: Well, I decided a few years ago, around 2006, that I wanted to go back to my love and passion with film and Leica cameras. And I decided to do a book on Hawaii and show sort of a hidden side that a lot of folks on the mainland don't see. Tourists, they'll come to Hawaii and they don't get to places like Waianae on the Oahu Coast up there. And this project has been intermittent because I've had a lot of things in my life that have sort of gotten in the way. Like I got married to a German girl and now I live in Hamburg. So I've come back whenever I can, and this is one of my trips.
1: Fabulous. Well, I'm delighted that you're here today. Now, I know that you're probably a little bit tired of talking about Tank Man, but I'm going to ask <laughs> you anyway. First of all, this iconic photograph of the man standing in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square was taken on June fifth, 1989. What was the atmosphere in China like at that time? Just your general impressions.
2: Well, there'd been mass protests, uh, you know, protesters near Tiananmen Square. Hundreds of thousands of people had been forming there. They had hunger strikers. It was very well organized. They had a security ring. They were giving food to some of the uh, students, And my job, I was the Associated Press Southeast Asia picture editor based in Bangkok. So I was flown up there to cover this story. So this was a daily routine that went on. And sooner or later, things started getting a little bit heated with the government troops. There was a lot of jostling going on, but nothing serious. And on the night of June 3rd, things started really coming to a head. And that's when I got caught in the middle of a burning armored car situation And I got a rock thrown in in my face, and I was looking down at my flash and the light. I was waiting for the light to go on, the battery light. And as soon as I saw the light, I lifted the camera to my face, and I was hit in the face by a massive blow. as a rock. And I looked down, and my camera was completely smashed. Blood was all over me. And then the burning armored car, a soldier, came out to surrender to the crowd. And then they killed him. And, and and at that point, I tried to get out of there and get back to the AP office, but it was pretty crazy.
1: You were badly injured by oh, that. Oh yeah, name. I had a
2: massive concussion. I was knocked silly, and plus I had the flu the whole time, so I was really sick as a dog. And I got back to the well, I got back to the um, to the AP office, which was at the diplomatic compound. And one of our photo editors there, Mark Avery, who was the Beijing photo chief for AP, he said, "Don't go back out there, killing people." And I said, "No kidding! You know, I had blood all over me, I a smashed camera, and he's filing a picture of a dead protester that was run over by a tank." Well, I went back to my room, and I was just really injured, sick, and scared. I made one of the most difficult decisions of my career, and I, I could have gone back out, and but I was so sick and so injured, and I was scared to death. I decided just not to go back out, and I went to my room and I ordered some room service, uh, a cheeseburger, I think, and I turned on CNN, and there's all these flames just down the street, and I'm thinking to myself, something's not right here. These protesters are down there risking their life, they're they're fighting for democracy, and I'm having a cheeseburger watching it on CNN. I said, this is not right. So I felt like a coward, and I felt really horrible about it, but I, I sort of made up for it because I came in the next day, and there's an off, a message from AP in New York saying, we don't want anyone to make any unnecessary risk. But if somebody could please photograph the Occupy Tiananmen Square, we, <laughs> and I'm looking at it, that's not what I wanted to see.
1: Well, you'd already sort of taken huge risk and gotten really badly injured for it. But you did decide to go back out, and that's what I'd like to hear more about. It wasn't easy for you to get this photograph. So talk a little bit about just the physical getting where you needed to be.
2: We used bicycles back then. You didn't have a car because you had soldiers and trucks driving around the city randomly killing people. So when they told me that somebody had to go, and there were three of us, only three photographers, and I was the, the lucky one, and so I had to take a bicycle and ride about two miles to the Beijing Hotel because that's where the closest vantage point was to get a long lens shot of the occupied square.
1: Were you, as an obvious American, were you feeling welcome there? Were they targeting you? Were they ignoring you? How were they treating you and other Americans like you?
2: Well, they weren't, weren't like, specifically picking targets. They were shooting at anything that moved. They didn't care who you were. So when I rode my bicycle there, I mean, I thought, okay, I hear sporadic gunfire in the distance, but it's not too bad, and there's other people riding bicycles around. But then when I got to this big interchange— there were four tanks on the overpass, and they—they they were all manned with huge machine guns by soldiers, and they were looking around. And so I'm riding this bicycle under the overpass to get past them, and you know I'm just thinking to myself, I cannot believe I'm doing this. You know, it's like your brain goes into this weird thing, and, and a flashback when I was a kid. I was thinking, you know, I—I I remember with my first camera in Northridge, California, and how excited I was. And now here I'm on a bicycle again. You know, years later. With a camera in my hand, and yet my life is at risk. And I finally made it to the Beijing Hotel, and I walked through, and I knew that they had security there. They were using electric cattle prods on journalists. They were poking them if they didn't give up their cameras or their notebooks. Really? Yeah, and I, I knew this. So I hid all my lenses and my camera, and my, you know, I put my film in my underwear, and I put my lenses and cameras and back pockets and jacket. And I walked to the front door expecting to get arrested, but I saw some American kid in the shadows. His name was Kurt. Kirk Martson. And when I went in there, I just pretended I knew him. And I said, hey, Joe, where you been? I've been looking for you. And I said, I'm from AP. Can you let me up to your room? And he picked up on it immediately. And the security were coming towards me. But when he saw I was with him, then they thought I I was in the room. And so they turned around and left. He did said, you
1: breathe a big sigh of relief at that oh, point?
2: Oh, yeah, but I'll tell you even bigger, because he said, man, it's a good thing you got here when you did. And I said, why? Because about five minutes ago, a truckload of soldiers just shot and killed a bunch of people in the lobby, and I had to hide behind a taxi. So when I got to the room, just oh, man. And so uh, I basically just collapsed of exhaustion on the bed and uh, went, took a nap for a while.
1: Well, Kirk Martson had to see that you were injured, because surely with that big cut on your head, you looked like... A victim anyway, right? Well,
2: it hit me in the nose, and uh, the camera actually got smashed against my nose. So um, it was more of a bloody nose thing, but it did give me a concussion. So I didn't have a massive laceration or anything. Mm -hmm. But I just was knocked silly, and so everything was kind of spacey.
1: Okay, so you're sleeping on the bed. What happens next?
2: Well, you know, um, I would hear a noise. I'd go out to the balcony, and the first thing I noticed is a bullet hole right over the wall. So I knew that I was easy range to somebody. And I would shoot pictures of, like you know, injured and dying, being taken on little carts. Sometimes a tank would bulldoze one of the burned-out buses, you know, to get it out of the way in the road. And, And I shot a lot of film, but then I ran out. And that was a mistake on my part. And I asked Kirk, I said, look, can you go and find me some film? Because if I go out, I might be arrested and, you know, they won't suspect you. You just look like a, you know, a student. So I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. And he went out, and he looked, and he came back two hours later with one roll of film.
1: Where did he get it?
2: He literally had to convince and pry it out of the hands of a tourist because the hotel was dark. Everybody pretty much left. But he found one tourist that was still left, and he had one roll of Fuji 100 ASA film. Wow. And he gave that, and I loaded it in my camera, which is an auto-exposure camera, Nikon autofocus. Not I mean, not autofocus. It was an automatic exposure. It was a Nikon FE2 and that's important in a way to, because it affected the picture in the long run.
1: So now you've got film, which is pretty amazing that this kid was able to go out and find what you needed. But sort of one of the things I'm going to ask you about later is this is before the age of digital photography, so the situation was very different. So now you've got your film, you load it. What do you do then?
2: Well, I have the film there, and I took a nap again because I'm just really exhausted. And then we heard the familiar sound of tanks coming down the street. And I walked out to the balcony, and I said, okay, there's a lot of tanks coming, and I think this will be a nice long lens compression shot, you know, where they all look like they're tight together. And some guy walks out with shopping bags, and I, and I told Curry, this guy's going to screw up my composition. And then he's saying, they're going to kill that guy. They're going to kill that guy. And so I'm just waiting, and like, this guy's crazy. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for him to get shot, and nothing happens.
1: And he's standing in
2: front of the tanks. Well, he's standing there, and, and I'm just waiting, and then I'm looking back at the bed because it's kind of far away. So I've got another little lens that you can double the focal length of what, you know, 400 millimeter, it would have made it a really long 800 millimeter. And the question is, do you gamble it? Do you go to the bed and get it and miss the shot? Or do you stay and you get a shot that's really far away that's kind of hard to see? So I've always been a gambler, and I ran for it, got the teleconverter, put it on the camera. I took one, advanced it because there's no motor drive. I had to sneak it into my pants. Two, three, and then I looked at the electronic meter on the camera, and it was fluttering around 30th of a second. If you know anything about photography, you know that's an impossible picture. An 800-millimeter focal length at 30th of a second is impossible. You know, why? The,
1: why is it impossible?
2: Because the shutter has to stay open longer because uh, the, 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 it needs more light, and so what happens is you're moving, your your body is vibrating, and it vibrates, and it, the, that when a long lens, when you have a long lens, it's even more magnified. So uh, for uh, I needed a shutter speed around thousands of a second, and I'm shooting at about thirtieth of a second. So when it was all over with, somebody came and they kind of swept them away. A crowd, I mean, a few people came.
1: So he was not killed by the tanks? He wasn't run over nor no, killed by the soldiers? No, he
2: was swept away by somebody. And to this day, nobody really knows who that was. I came back in the room, sat down next to the window, and Kirk said, did you get it? Did you get the picture? And I said, I don't think so, man. And he said, come on, did you get it? Did you get it? I don't know, maybe one, but I doubt it. So I said, listen, i got to get on my film, and i got to get back to the AP office. Can you help me? He said, okay. And I said, can you smuggle this out of you know in your underwear or something and ride back to the AP office? He says, Okay. So he literally risked his life, and he put the film in his pants. And I'm watching from the balcony as he walks past the secret police smoking cigarettes, and they, re- they don't realize that one of the most iconic photos in history is just going right by them out the door. He gets on the bicycle, pedals off, and we don't know where he's You know, There, there was other people around, like his teacher, I think, was there. And he disappeared, and I wasn't sure if I'd ever see him again. But five hours later, I called up the office, how yeah. did
1: you how did you call the office? Because this is certainly before cell phones.
2: Telephones worked okay. in the room. It was amazing. They didn't cut the lines. The phone, I, we did have the maid pound on that door a lot of times looking in trying to see what was going on. But we kept her out. And the first words out of Mark Avery, our photo editor guy, he said, uh, Jeff, what shutter speed were you shooting? So <laughs> I thought, I, well, it wasn't very sharp, but we ran it on the wire. So I overnighted that night. And I found out later that, Kirk didn't make it to there, there, he made it to, he couldn't find it. He was going down side streets and he couldn't find the AP office. So he took it to the U.S. Embassy. Brilliant. And the U.S. Embassy forwarded it to AP. And if it wasn't for the U.S. Embassy, those pictures never would have gotten out. And it certainly would never have gotten out if Kirk hadn't have done it, because he risked his life and he made it back uh, to tell me, you know, what had happened. But I went back to the office and then I went to get some rest. The next day when I came in, one of the photographers made a joke, and he said, you got some bad messages from New York. And I looked, and it was like message after message after message of congratulations from bureaus around the world. It said, Widener's picture is fronting all U.K. papers, front half page. A newspaper Liberation in Paris wants exclusive interview. Life magazine wants uh, the picture. Time magazine wants it. It just was incredible, the amount of uh, impact that photo had on everybody. And, and I just was actually signed... A big sigh of relief that I didn't screw something up because when you work for a wire service, it's this constant pressure because of deadlines and your competitors like Reuters and AFP. You're constantly in fear that you're going to lose the play numbers on the, how many papers use your picture. So I'm more concerned out of fear that I'm going to screw up than I am about getting a great picture. So I was so relieved that I didn't screw up, you know, and 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 so and fortunately, it was icing on the cake when I found out, you know, how well it was received.
1: Not just how well it was received. Truly, it's a photograph that most anybody who was of a certain age, meaning you had to be sort of like 12 years old or older at that time, everybody knows what that photograph is. And it also really showed what was happening in China, which is a very closed society and does not like openness, does not like journalists, doesn't like their story shared, particularly at that time. And even still today. Well,
2: certainly the government didn't.
1: Oh, no, no, absolutely not. But the processors
2: were actually hoping and wanting us to get the news out.
1: That photo has been seen almost everywhere. Do you know if that photo has ever been seen in China?
2: In the very beginning, I believe they ran the picture in China to show how tolerant the government was. And then afterwards, I believe it was censored and no one's allowed to look at it. You can't search for it on the Internet. They block it. You can get in real trouble. I've actually seen mainland Chinese tourists, I've showed my business card which has the picture on it and they just get scared and they run away. They don't want to talk about it, they just leave. So I think a lot of them do know about the photo but they're too scared to even talk about or be associated with.
1: Wow. That. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations and I'm Sherry Bracken. Today I'm rebroadcasting an interview I first recorded back in 2015 with Jeff Weidner, the photojournalist who took the iconic photo Tank Man, which you may find on the KWXX and B97B93 Facebook page or on the podcast on kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. Later in the interview, Jeff Weidner and I will talk about a book about Hidden Hawaii that he was working on in 2015 and is still working on. Jeff and I will talk a little bit about photojournalism and photography. Jeff and I have been emailing in the last couple of weeks, and he and his wife have been living in Hamburg, Germany, but in about two weeks, they're going to be resettling in Mexico City. Next week, we're going to be talking about something that really relates sadly to COVID-19, and that is that more people are now suffering from depression, particularly young adults, it turns out. I'm scheduled to talk with psychologist Dr. Catherine May and physician Assistant Christopher Russell, both from West Hawaii Community Health Center. Before we get back to our conversation, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, KTA Superstores.
0: At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown protein. Our Mountain Apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA.
1: I understand that courtesy of the BBC, you actually returned to Tiananmen Square about 20 years after you took that photo. Mm-hmm. And you had a chance encounter of the romantic kind. So tell us about what happened on that trip.
2: Well, I stayed at the same hotel, the Jangwal, because I'm a bit of a sentimentalist. So I wanted to kind of stay in the same place nothing much had changed. You know, they was the same bamboo chairs where the bar was and everything. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to make a sentimental walk to Tiananmen Square. It's a really long walk, and I'm walking along, and I look on the side of the road, and there's this pretty blonde young girl sitting there smoking a cigarette and had a backpack. So like an idiot, you know, I walk up to her and start talking to her. You know, she's, I'm old enough to be her father, and we start chatting up. And then I ask her if she wanted to have some lunch, and we went over near the Forbidden City, and we talked and spent the whole day together. And that evening, it started raining really hard, and we were near a canal, and I said, well, we better get out of the rain. So we went to this ancient tea house. It was just candlelit, and there was nobody there, just a couple, three ladies serving. And for five hours, I drank this god-awful tea, and I had to pee in the worst way, but I was scared if I went to the bathroom and I came back, she'd be gone. And so for five hours, I talked to her, and finally I said, I think there's some chemistry here, and she says, I think so. And then we were married a year later in Honolulu. And so I've been married now almost five years, and I live in Hamburg, Germany.
1: Amazing. What a chance encounter, don't you think?
2: Well, if somebody had told me 20 years before, during all that bloodshed, that I would come back and meet my future wife, I thought <laughs> I'd told, told him to go have another scotch, you know, because it's amazing. Uh, fate has a strange sense of humor, definitely.
1: Jeff Widener, I'd like to go back. You're a photojournalist. You although best known, perhaps, for Tank Man. You've been making your living by taking news photos. You've worked for a lot of different organizations. Define for us, what is a photojournalist? How is that different from a photographer?
2: Well, a photojournalist is somebody who basically is documenting humanity. You're photographing instant news moments. You're trying to cover social issues and tell it in photos. I absolutely have had an incredible few days here, on the island, I was in Hilo and ran into uh, some folks that got me into some areas that would be very difficult normally to meet people, for instance, like pig hunting. And I'm, I'm this book on a project that I'm working on. I think it's important to be in the book. But the kindness uh, that some of these folks have shown me. And the openness in which they've accepted me has just been uh, been fantastic. And so I've been really lucky to have had some good help from some friends here.
1: That's one of the things that makes Hawaii Island so special. You mentioned that you document humanity, but as a photojournalist, you really have learned, or maybe by chance in some cases, you've learned to tell a story in just one photo because that Tank Man photo really says a lot. And the reason it's iconic is it, it tells the whole story of what was going on on that day.
2: You know, it's funny because I remember when I was a kid, uh, in fact, I have a photo of it because I had a tripod set up in my house in California, Northridge. Took a picture of me. I had my cat on the bed. And that day I was looking at a Time Life book and I was looking at these iconic photos. And there was the Hindenburg crash, you know, in the 1930s. And there was the Kent State shootings and Eddie Adams' picture in Vietnam of the guy getting shot. And even, I think it was uh, Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And I got a strange feeling when I looked at those pictures and I thought, you know, what wonder if I'll ever have a picture like that. And so one day, years and years later, about maybe 10 years ago, I was looking online, and it was America Online, and the headline said the top 10 most memorable photos of all time. And so I was looking through it, and there were the same pictures, the Hindenburg crash, the Kent State shootings, you know, the whole thing.
1: And what else was there? A
2: splash of color shows up, and this familiar image, and it was my Tank Man photo with my name under it. And I don't think it really sank in, the importance of that photo in my life, until that moment. That's when it hit me like a 2 by 4 It really was a strange experience when I saw that.
1: It sounds like you were interested in photography from a very young age. For people who might be listening, who might think that photojournalism might be a great career, tell us more about your background, your training. Tell us how you got to be a photojournalist. Well, the
2: first thing you have to do is be a bad artist. I realized that I was never going to be a Leonardo da Vinci, and it was much easier to just pick up a camera and take photos. We lived in Arizona when I was about eight years old, and one day my father had a friend from Life magazine, and he came over to take some pictures for Christmas. When he opened that camera bag, my eyes just bulged open. There was lenses and cameras and film cartons and light meters and all kinds of stuff, and it just stuck in my brain, and I was fascinated by cameras. So eventually in high school, I managed to get in one of the classes, and I drove them all crazy. Look at my picture. What do you think? What do you think of my picture? Do you like it? Do you like it? And I was so passionate. I got a job, an illegal night shift job, working a jack-in-the-box at age 15. I was washing dishes in a Chinese restaurant. And I finally saved up enough money to take a trip to Canada with some friends, and I did a whole bunch of photography. And I changed school in my senior year, which is very difficult. It was a wealthier school district and system, and you could only be transferred to another district if you're supposedly a gifted child, which I thought was hilarious. I always thought I was a Charlie Brown, not a gifted child. But I changed schools, and I entered the Codex Scholastic National Photography Scholarship Competition, and I beat out 8,000 students.
1: That's not bad.
2: And I'm in Bombassa in Africa, and I'm sitting on a swing, and I said to myself, I like this, and this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to travel around the world. I'm going to document humanity. And from that point on, I just started hitting on the doors, newspapers, and then eventually I got on with United Press International in Brussels. And then I got my big break with Associated Press in Bangkok, and it just kept on going. But a lot of guys would start at the bureaus, the bureau level. They'd, you know, they'd string, they'd work. I went straight to the top guy. I went to the vice president. I did it with AP and UPI, and I bugged them, and I went to the top guy. And eventually the top guy hired me, which caused a lot of animosity with some of the photographers that had been working in these other bureaus. But that's just the way I've been. I just go to the top guy.
1: You had some formal training, though.
2: Well, I mean, it depends on what period you're talking about, because, of course, newspapers was an important part to get experience before you go on a wire service. Because, you know, in the days when I was working at AP in Asia, you're carrying around a picture transmitter, you're carrying a line stabilizer, because the stabilizer and the voltage is terrible, carrying around a dark room and you have to set it. I literally gutted hotel rooms, you know, just turn it into an office in a dark room. Then you just pay the bill. But I was setting up in, like, cockroach-infested dark rooms, and you transmit to get the pictures out to the rest of the world. And some of the most exotic places, they turn the power off at night, and you're in Burma, in the middle of Burma with no power. I mean, it really gets your brain thinking, you know, when you're there all alone at night just looking at a million stars.
1: Didn't you have some college that was related to photography? Didn't I read that?
2: I attended Pierce College in Los Angeles. I was kicked off the school paper twice. <laughs> and then I went to Moorpark College, and the teacher there accepted me with open arms. And in fact, we're still extremely good friends to this day. It's funny because a lot of students were looking for internships. I just got the Yellow Pages out, and I started calling local papers. And one day, I called the Whittier Daily News, uh, where Nixon was born. I said, you know, my name's Jeff Widener. Have you got any openings? says, "As a matter of fact, we do. And I said, can I apply? Sure. When? How about now? I said, okay. I went there, I showed him my work, and he says, When can you start? And I said, How about tomorrow? I said, Okay. And then the second day I was in the LA Coliseum covering the Rams game, football game.
1: So Jeff Widener, what would you say makes a great photo? How do you create your great photos?
2: Well great photos are not easy. I once was quoted in an article in a magazine that the great pictures don't grow on trees. Great photos, a lot of the time, happen by chance, but your chances are increased if you anticipate. And anticipating, knowing your subject, knowing about people, you have to know what people are going to do before they even know it. And so a lot of people say, well, I took this photo. I don't take photos. I feel photos. If a photograph reminds you of a past lover or a past song and it lingers for weeks or months... You feel the soul of that image. That is a successful photo, but that's very hard to do. To this day, I still struggle with that. To get those kind of images that sing to you, that's what you're looking for. That's the ultimate goal, that you're sharing someone's soul, basically, in a photograph.
1: That was lovely. I know that Tank Man, although perhaps you're most famous, you've done a lot of other photography. I'd like to know if there's anything else that sticks in your mind. You
2: know, I've seen so many incredible things. I've been to over a hundred countries. I've flown in F-16 fighter jets. I've stood at the South Pole. I've gotten in fist fights with French photographers in front of Princess Diana. I've stepped on the Pope's robe in Papua New Guinea. I almost killed him with a lens in uh, Liverpool. It almost fell on his head. I can't even begin to tell you the things that I've seen. And I'm so fortunate to have just stumbled my way through my career because I really have, st- I almost feel like I'm Forrest Gump sometimes. How did I get in these situations? Because I've never you know, considered myself an A student, and I was a kid always dropping the ball in school. And somehow, some way, I've managed to just travel all over the world.
1: Jeff Widener, I am not a photographer, but I do notice in the mock-up of your upcoming book that you have sitting in front of you that your photographs are black and white. Tell us why you're choosing black and white as opposed to color, particularly for a colorful place like Hawaii.
2: That's a good question. I guess the reason is black and white has a different feel. And I've always been sort of a romantic. I love the classic period from the 1950s and the 1960s Life magazine era. One of my mentors is Joseph Kadelka. He's a Czech photographer who did a book called Gypsies and Exiles. Also, Cartier-Bresson, Gary Winogrand, Robert Frank. All these photographers had a major influence on me. And so when we started switching to color, when I got at AP and then we went to digital... I really started to miss black-and-white film, and I miss Leica cameras, because the Leica camera is like the Rolls-Royce of 35-millimeter cameras. And it's just it's more hands-on. It's not electronic. It's, you, know, you have to think as a photographer. You have to think of what you're doing. You have to anticipate. And this is the challenge of it. I love the challenge, because you never know what you're going to get when you get back from the darkroom. Digital is immediate, immediate gratification, but when the film comes back and it's on the light table and you're looking at it and the pictures do come out or they don't come out, the disappointment, the, the excitement of something working, that's what I love about it. And I just love the way it looks, that classic consistency. And black and white strips to the bare truth. There's no distraction. I think somebody, I'm not sure if it was um, Salgado or somebody else said that color is vulgar. I mean, I'm not sure that I totally agree with that, but in a way you get sort of a drift on how black and white can get right to the truth.
1: When you talk about film versus digital, the photographs in this book that you're bringing out, are they on film or are they digital?
2: No, these are all film. Tri-X film with Leica M7 rangefinder cameras, and a few of them are with Contax film cameras and a few SLRs. I think there's maybe one picture, it's a Nikon, because it was an 800 millimeter shot.
1: I sort of didn't realize that people still shot photographs with film.
2: I do get some funny looks from people sometimes, especially kids, you know, they kind of... We look surprised when they see the process. And even I'm amazed sometimes that people would question film. That's one of the things I love about it. You know, I want to keep this tradition alive.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff Widener, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. This has been really quite interesting. It's
2: my pleasure. Thanks.
1: Before we say aloha, first, a huge thank you to our audience. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with photojournalist Jeff Widener. Kirk Short, who is with Kona Camera Club, had arranged for me to speak with Jeff, and Kirk tells me Kona Camera Club is still going strong, so if you are an existing or a budding photographer check it out go to Kona Camera Club on Facebook I'm Sherry Bracken this is Island Conversations until next time please let's all live and drive with aloha ahoi ho thank
0: you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken available anytime at kwxx.com we welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com Join us next week for another Highland Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.